Good morning, friends. It's, uh, it's always a joy to be here in the house of the Lord and to uh, look into his wonderful word. If you have your, I'm sure you have your Bibles with you, please uh, turn with me to Psalm 116. Wonderful how the Lord works all things together. Um, just hearing in this, in this message uh, some of what Jordan was saying from Chronicles, some of the praise uh, as well. And I, when I heard um, them practicing, are we singing glorious and mighty? Yeah. So um, let's, uh, let's read the Lord's word together. We'll ask him to bless his word and then we'll go into the message. Psalm 116. <clears throat> I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Let's, let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for preserving your word. Father, thank you for the words of the psalmist for us. Father, for every one of us here. Father, I thank you that your word is, is good. Father, that it can soothe the hurting soul. Father, I thank you that it instructs us and challenges us. Father, I pray for everyone here this morning, Lord, that you would minister the, to them. Father, bless your word now. I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And just, just before we start, um, just for the children, just be listening. I've got a, just an announcement after the service. Friends, when we think about true worship, there's a place where that happens, and it's just between me and my God. It exists outside the gaze and the knowledge of anyone else. Anyone who's genuinely saved, they know that aspect of worship. But of course, there'll always be an act of worship that is public in nature. 
It doesn't just exist in the midst of others, but it requires others. It shares with others, it invests in others, it receives from others. Every genuine believer demonstrates their private devotion in the congregation of the Lord and in the world. There's something we should be clear about. Oh, I just need to shift this. Ah. Ah, thank you. We often take personal and corporate worship and we separate the two. But we should be clear how they relate to one another and how, in fact, they contribute to one another. They, how they need each other. How does the scripture relate the personal to corporate worship? And I think that's what we see here in this Psalm 116. Public or corporate worship, if it's genuine, is a reflection of what is true in the inner man. It has to be. That first there's a worship going on in my heart personally before proclaiming it in the word in the worship of God publicly, else what Jesus said from Isaiah, lest that be true of us, that these people honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. If I claim to have a personal relationship with the Lord, that I privately worship him, but I'm not faithful to do what he commands, surely I'm demonstrating that my personal devotion is really a lie. I mean... If we really do worship the Lord personally, privately, then we must care about what the Bible says, what it declares about corporate worship. How can I say, I love God, I love the God of the Word, but I don't love the Word of my God? And God has a lot to say about corporate worship. So the person who says, hey, I have my own thing going with God, you know, uh, I, I watch sermons, uh, videos, I, I read books, but they don't see the need to be faithful in the congregation or to love the Lord's church, to invest in the Lord's people. Someone who's talking like that is giving evidence that what they claim to exist between them and God privately doesn't exist. Either that or they are very poorly taught. Hebrews 10.24 was one of the favourites of our old faith Baptist, independent Baptist days. Uh, and uh, Hebrews 10.24, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. These two aspects of our worship, private and public, are equally as necessary one can't exist with the other. And when we gather each Sunday, hopefully it's as a people who've been worshipping God on the six days before this one. When we do gather, it should be to pour out to our God what we have known on a personal level. They need each other, the, the personal and the corporate. Sometimes, in fact, what's happened in the personal realm becomes something God uses in the public realm. And that's what we have here in Psalm 116. In this psalm, we, we don't know who, who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. And we don't even really understand the, the, fully the circumstances uh, of what's happening here. But we see the personal and the corporate coming together. 
this man's personal experience bringing that into the congregation, into the house of the Lord, and everyone being edified. And think about that when we see someone baptized. We hear their testimony, their very personal experience about what has happened between them and the Lord. It's, it's a private experience, but it edifies and it builds everyone up. It's brought into that corporate setting and everyone is encouraged. This psalm has been divided up many different ways by different commentators, but we'll uh, look at it in three parts today. And that is a lifetime vow in verses 1 to 4, God's goodness, uh, verses 5 to 11, and fervent public worship, uh, verses 12 to the end. In verse 1 to 4, we see a lifetime vow, which is born out of the Lord's compassion. He writes, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. That's what I mean by a lifetime vow, as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pains of Sheol lay hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And he says in verse 1 that God heard his cry. I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. I love the fact that, that this, this whole chapter simply begins and opens with, I love the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, I love the Lord is a blessed declaration. And I love what he says on this portion of the psalm. Spurgeon says, Every believer ought to be able to declare it without the slightest hesitation. And I love this. It was required under the law to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. It was required by the law, but it was never produced in the human heart except by the grace of God. Uh, Spurgeon says, and upon gospel principles, it is a great thing to say it for the sweetest of all graces and the surest of all evidences of salvation is love. He says, it is, it is great goodness on the part of God that he condescends to be loved by such poor creatures as we are. And it's a sure proof, he says, that what has been at work in our hearts, it's when we can say, thou knowest all things and thou knowest that I love thee. Can you say that today, friends? Can you say, I love the Lord and I love his son, the Lord Jesus? The psalmist pledges his love for God for the rest of his life and he will go on calling upon the Lord for as long as he lives. I guess it could be called a renewal because he's reaffirming, sorry, reaffirming what's already been true in his life. In verse 4, he says, Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. It's something he's already done, so here he's reaffirming what he knows. But he wants to explain his love. I love the Lord because he inclined his ear. The psalmist says, I want to tell you why I love him. No surprise, Spurgeon again is good on this. 
Spurgeon says, they say that love is blind. But when we love God, our affection has its eyes upon, uh, sorry, has its eyes open and can sustain itself with the most rigid logic. We have reason, super abundant reason for loving the Lord. So because in this case, he says, principle and passion go together and they make up an admirable state of mind. When you say, I love the Lord, and there are reasons I love him, I want to give you some reasons I love the Lord. That's what the psalmist does. That's what Spurgeon is saying here. What does he describe? First of all, he describes being near death. And in that condition, he knew great distress. He says in verse 3, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Sounds like a type of constriction. Those snares surrounding him, closing in on him, strangling him as it were and dragging him down to Sheol, to the grave. Again, we don't know what the circumstances were, but it sounds, <laughs> sounds pretty, pretty severe. And he knew anxiety in that state. He suffered distress. He was troubled. So what did he do? He lifted to the Lord desperate cries for deliverance. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Note he cried out, note that he cried out to God not because he deserved anything. That's why he describes it as as pleas for mercy. What he wanted was his soul's deliverance and what he met with was an answer. The Lord heard him. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice. He heard my pleas for mercy. He inclined his ear. One commentator described it as like a dying man on his deathbed where the, where the doctor leans over and that dying man whispers in his ear. He's so near death. And in this psalm, it seems... Obviously, the, the deliverance is physical in nature. But this same praise should be in the mouth of every one of us gathered here today because the Lord's delivered us from death, hasn't he? He's heard our pleas for mercy. And it was much more dire for us than it was for him because we were not facing just death, but we were facing the second death, eternal death judgment from God. We were in a spiritual grave, dead in trespasses and sins. All that awaited us was everlasting judgment. But, but God filled our hearts, filled our mouths with the very cries for mercy that he was ready to grant. And I would remind you again of what was, um, what was even spoken of in the gospel presentation. Just as Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's God who explains the sinner's repentance. It's God who moves in the sinner's heart so that we cry out to him for mercy that he's already ready to grant. That's why our hearts are so burdened. That's why our mouths were filled with pleas of mercy because God has worked in us. In Acts 11, we read there, when they heard these things, this is the Jews, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also 
God has granted repentance that leads to life. We would never have sought him. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. But praise God, he sought us. And he filled our hearts with a desire for himself. And then he answered the very pleas that he taught us to cry out with. He heard us. He delivered us by what he did for us in his son. We can give the same explanation for our love that the psalmist gives here, but it should be in a greater way. I love the Lord because he heard my pleas for mercy. I love the Lord because he's forgiven all my sins. I love the Lord because he's delivered me from everlasting death. I love the Lord because it was all mercy and grace, something I didn't deserve. But he heard me when I cried out to him. In these first four verses, the psalmist makes a lifetime vows, vow and says, I'll keep on calling upon his name for the rest of, the lo- of my life. Why? Because he has shown compassion to me. The second we, thing we see in verses 5 to 11 is a reflection on God's goodness. A reflection on God's goodness. That's why I was asking Jordan about Are we going to sing glorious and mighty? The Lord delivered the psalmist. What he does now in verses 5 to 11 is is reflect on all, all that has happened, all that the Lord has done, all that the Lord is. What he, what he declares here isn't anything new. These, these truths are found throughout the Old Testament, but now it's true for him. It's true in his life. And I trust that you will know these truths also in your life. These, no doubt he's been taught these things. Now he knows them in a personal way and he calls them to mind and he wants to recite them. And that's what you have in verses 5 and 6. It's a declaration of God's character, that God is gracious and righteous. Our God is merciful. Our God is glorious. What have I learned from this experience? He says, I've been reminded that God is glorious. What is the glory of God? It's the sum of all his attributes. God's glory is his name. It's his nature. Moses, you remember when he asked the Lord if he could see his glory, the Lord said, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass before you and I will declare my name. And how did the Lord declare his name? He said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. The Hebrew word in our passage, has to do with compassion. Our God is gracious. And in fact, although there are other Hebrew words that convey that concept of graciousness, this Hebrew, this Hebrew word here, um, I better be careful because James is listening, kanun, um, is only ever used as an attribute of God. He's gracious in a way that only God can be gracious. Exodus 22 says, If ever you take your neighbor's cloak, 
cloak in a, a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that's his only covering, and it is, he, and it is his cloak for his body. What else? In what else shall he sleep? And God says, And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. That's that same Hebrew word. He's gracious. He is compassionate. And as I said, in Exodus 34, the Lord is merciful and gracious. That's the same Hebrew word. The psalmist is saying, can I tell you that God cares in a way that only God can care? God is tender with his people. God enters into the hurts and sorrows of his people. And he treats them in a way that our needs matter to him. He takes note of the one who's in dire straits and calls out for help. He hears them. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is gracious and righteous. God is compassionate to sinners in a way that is still in complete agreement with his holy nature. And what I mean by that is you and I, we, we can sometimes be guilty of, guilty of showing a kind of compassion, can't we, that is not righteous. It, in the short or long term, it actually hurts people. It's not in accordance with the truth, but not God. It's a good, this is a good test of what we call compassion. Does it stand up to the test of God's righteousness? And I know this myself. We, I can be talking to someone, encouraging them, but listen, am I also telling them the truth? in love? Or am I just trying to comfort them without telling them the hard truth? Is our kind of compassion, does it reflect God's righteousness? God's compassion is shown in a way that it's both compassionate and wholly righteous. He is both just and the justifier of ungodly people. He deals with us as a father because his son paid the price in order to make us his children. So God's compassion to us didn't involve ignoring our sins. And this is what we sometimes do when we're trying to be compassionate to someone. God didn't ignore our sins. God instead forgave our sins. Our sins were paid for by promise here in the Old Testament, but in reality, of course, at the cross by the blood of God's own dear Son. So God is holy, perfectly holy. His just and upright standards are not ignored. They're completely respected and satisfied in Christ. All our sins are paid for by Christ, and we stand in the grace of God, and God can be, then be forever gracious to us. The psalmist experienced both the grace and the righteousness of God. And then he says, our God is merciful. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. When you take the grace of God and the righteousness of God, it results, well, it results, it's linked to God's mercy. And that mercy there is, is a love. It's, it's a love that pities its objects. God has taken pity on us. And it's an amazing kind of love. God knows a kind of pity towards his people, not based on their performance. Praise God for that. 
I don't love you because of who you are, God would say. I love you despite of who you were. I've loved you because I've loved you. That's his mercy. And though our experience of this can be imperfect, very imperfect and sinful, we can know something about this time of pity, this type of pity and love, about this type of uh, mercy. If you think about, and I'm sure there, I'm sure there's a parent here who has a child who perhaps has not only strayed, they might have insulted you, they might have taken advantage of you. You might even be angry, very angry with them. And it could make you, if you didn't love them, cut them off. Because you've treated me this way, after all I've done for you. But every loving parent knows that if you let that child have a change of heart, if that child has a repentant spirit, then when they cry out to you for mercy, for help, you'll go to the ends of the earth to help that child because you love them. Mercy, by its definition, is not something earned, it's something given. God is both gracious and equally righteous, and he's borne that cost so he's able to show us mercy. In light of God's mercy, how merciful ought we to be to each other? Something else the psalmist, notice, uh, the psalmist notes is that in the goodness of our God, God is accessible. The Lord preserves the simple, he says. When I was brought low, he saved me. What is the simple man? Maybe the kind of person who makes not the wisest decisions, the kind of person who strays and wonders. The psalmist says, God takes care of even those people. He preserves and rescues the simple, and I'm particularly um, glad of this verse and encouraged by it. He has mercy on them. And then you have this humble confession. He says, when I was brought low, he saved me. God preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. God takes care of the simple people. And by the way, I'm exhibit A. That's the psalmist, not me, but it could be either. When I was brought low, the Lord saved me. A few months ago, we went through uh, the book of Jonah. And when we looked at Jonah, we saw that he too knew the scriptures. And in his distress, when he was brought low, he also cried out to God. And what Jonah prayed, we saw then was straight out of the Psalms. And I wonder if some of the thoughts that Jonah expressed were directly from Psalm 116. In Jonah 2, we read there that Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. There he was in the belly of the fish, and he remembers, you know what? God has mercy even on the simple. And uh, when we looked at Jonah, we saw that Jonah acted like a very simple man, a man who acted foolishly, who should have known better. And yet he knows in the belly of the fish that he can cry out to the Lord because the Lord is gracious, 
He's righteous. He's merciful. And note this, friends. Even when you are the explanation for why you are in the belly of the fish, he's still accessible. Turn. He's merciful. Turn in your heart and call out to him for mercy. Not for what you deserve, but what you don't deserve. And he will hear you. So in considering God's goodness, that he's glorious, he's always accessible, the result of that in verse 7 is that I am safe. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. In verse 3, he's been filled with distress and anguish. Now what is he doing? He's, He's preaching the truth of God's love for him to his own heart. He calls out to his own soul, return, O my soul, to your rest. Because there's a rest that belongs to the psalmist. There's a, there's a kind of rest that belongs to each child of God that we sometimes have to preach to ourselves, that we should preach to ourselves. What is the believer's place of rest? He noted it in the second part of verse 7. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Hasn't the Lord loved you? Hasn't the Lord been merciful to you? Hasn't the Lord been kind to you? Hasn't he been patient with you? Hasn't the Lord dealt bountifully? Return to your rest. Rest in the knowledge of his sovereign love. There's no safer place in the midst of our troubles, our trials, our storms, than to go to the remembrance of how good God has been to us. How faithfully He has and will love us. It's the believer's panic room. It's where we run to when we're afraid. When like Jonah, you feel the billows of the sea passing over you. When you're wrapped in seaweed at the bottom of the ocean, where do you go? You go to the knowledge that God loves me and he will never abandon me. It's that knowledge of sovereign love that's my rest and assurance. Also, be assured that even when God is correcting you, even in your disobedience, God loves you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. I trust you're convinced that that's true, that that's why. That's what the Lord does when he loves us. I pray you're convinced also that there's no accidents or the opposite to that luck. And no matter what the circumstances of your life, God loves you. Don't you remember how bountifully God has dealt with you? God is glorious. He is accessible. As a result of that, I am safe. And he has delivered me for devotion is the psalmist's cry. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Why has God delivered him from death, from heartache? He says, and my, my eyes from tears, from losing my faith, so that I won't, my feet will not stumble. God's delivered this man, he understands, for the purpose of devotion, What's his decision in light of how God has dealt with him? I will walk 
before the Lord in the land of the living. That is the here and now. I'll walk before the Lord, which is to say before his face. I'll walk before God in a way that I understand that God sees all, knows all. What he's saying is, in his life, his life will be transparent, submissive, willing to be corrected, willing to be directed. It's that kind of devotion. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. He saved you for himself. He saved you that you, that I might serve him, that, that we might walk before him in the land of the living. In reflecting on God's goodness, he rejoices in these truths. God is glorious. God is accessible. I am safe. I've been delivered for devotion. And now he can say, and this is a wonderful thing to realize, my faith is real. He says, I believed. Even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. You know what I've re come to realize when I was on death's doorstep, when I was being held by the snares of death and the pangs of Sheol, I looked up and I believed. Even as I was crying out in affliction, I recognized him. I saw him and I believed. I didn't place my confidence in man. I realized that the source of my deliverance wasn't going to be found by putting my trust in the frail arm of flesh. My confidence is in the Lord. And sometimes, sometimes we wonder this. Oh, well, I do. Um, sometimes we don't doubt God, but we doubt us. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. We know God is true. We know God's true. But sometimes we wonder in our heart, how could I have thought that? Am, am, am I true? Warren Worsby said um, some years ago that a faith that has not been tested cannot be trusted. And what he means by that is, is, is exactly what's happening in the psalmist's life here. That under severe trial, sometimes we see it sadly when someone's under uh, difficulty and, and you see that they perhaps are the, the seed that's fallen in that shallow soil. Because when the trials come and the cares of this world, they're either choked by the weeds or that they wither and die when the sun comes out. It's interesting that Paul makes use of the 10th the verse of this psalm in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. What are you, what are you trying to say, Paul? He's, Paul's saying, My preaching reflects what I believe what I know to be true. It's fueled by the knowledge of God's truthfulness. I believed and so I spoke. It's interesting to note that he's thinking about Psalm 116, but just in that earlier portion of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, he, he talks about all kinds of affliction and hardship. Paul says, we were afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, 
but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might be, may also be manifest in our bodies. You see, we go on preaching despite all the obstacles, all the afflictions, all the death at work. We go on preaching. Why? Because we believe. I know I believe. And this here, this man, at the lowest point, perhaps in his life, he also discovers what he really believes. Because just like Jonah, he looked up. Why did I call out to God? Why did I call out when I said I'm greatly afflicted? Why didn't I put my trust in man but in God? Because I believe. I know God is my refuge, so I must call upon my own soul to keep running to, know, to what I know is true. We saw a lifetime vow in the first verses 1 to 4 and the reflection of God's goodness in verses 5 to 11. And then in verse 12 to the end of the psalm, you have a fervent praise. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? It's, um, it's similar to Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I think this is really at the heart of the entire song, the psalm. I think this is it right here. What do I give to God in view of what he's given to me? What can I return for such grace, such love, mercy and patience? God has dealt bountifully with you, soul. He says in verse 7, what should I do in return? And when you take verses 13 through 19 together, I think what can be summarized is in a single answer, I will offer praise in the house of the Lord. The way God has dealt with me as an individual has to be expressed in the community of God's people. That's what it requires. It's the only fitting offering from my personal blessing, and that's public praise. And he describes that praise in more than one way. He says, I will publicly embrace the, the life of grace that God has given me. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. When he says pay my vows, it's no doubt a commitment that he's made in his own heart in the midst of all his trouble. Lord, if you will hear my Please, for mercy, I will serve you. It's exactly what Jonah said, didn't he, in, in chapter 2. And Jonah made that vow to the Lord even before he was delivered. He talks about a cup that the Lord has put in his hands. Not the cup of wrath that he deserves, but the cup of salvation. He's been gracious to me. He's been kind to me. God, what you've put in my hands, it's a life that you've produced by your grace. You've given me this opportunity to walk with you and I'm going to call on the name of the Lord for the rest of my life. Portion, speaking of this cup, and, and I love what he says here. Spurgeon says, he means that he will utter blessings and thanksgivings and prayers and then drink of the cup which the Lord had filled with his saving grace. 
What a cup is this? Upon the table of infinite love stands a cup full of blessing. It is ours by faith to take in our hand, make it our own, and partake of it, and then with joyful hearts to laud and magnify the gracious one who has filled it for our sakes. O Lord, what a cup you have put in our hands. This man doesn't want to hide his praise. He wants to express it in the midst of God's people. I'll publicly embrace the life of grace that God's given me. And secondly, he says, I will offer thanksgiving by by supremely valuing the one who has valued my soul. I'll supremely value the one who has valued my soul. In verse 15, he says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God, I've been reminded, as you rescued my life, that you care about my life, you care about the lives of your people. Their deaths mean something to you. They are precious, costly, valuable in your sight. Not just, not just me, but all your saints. And I, as I consider the value that you've placed on my life, I want to give expression to the value that you hold in my life. And here it is, I am your slave. Lord, I'm your slave. In the next verse, he says, O oh Lord, and he says it twice, I am your servant. I'm your servant the son of your maidservant, you have loosed my bonds. I belong to you. You've delivered me, rescued me, taking hold of my life. Interesting that he says, I'm your servant, the son of your maidservant, probably meaning that he's, well, I think meaning his mother was also a believer. And in effect, he's saying, I'm doubly your slave because in your kindness and mercy and grace to me before this experience, you delivered me. And now you've delivered me from this circumstance. I'm doubly your service. And what a heritage it is to be raised in a Christian family. What a heritage it is to have godly parents. To be taught the word from your youth. To belong to someone who's a servant of the Lord. What a tragedy when those children then turn from the only source of life and turn from the one who loves them and would save them if they would turn to him. This man says, I am your servant and I praise you. I praise you. I have a heritage of service to you. I'm the son of your maidservant. And this is only possible, isn't it? Because God has broken a slavery. You have loosed my bonds. We all know what it was like to be slaves of Satan and of sin. And here's my opportunity to bring in my favorite passage from Ephesians 2. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation. In times past, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, 
even as others. And these next two verse, two words, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Friends, we will battle with sin until the day we go home to be with the Lord. This flesh is still here, but we are no longer slaves to the flesh because he has loosed our bonds. And the only fitting response for that deliverance is that we recognize that we wholly belong to him. Lord, you value my life. You saved me from death. And now you hold the supreme value in my life. I'm your servant, the son of your maidservant. You've loosed your bonds so that I might be bound to you. And so in verses 17 to 19, I will publicly give you thanks because thanks is all I have to give. What will you return for such goodness? What can you give to the Lord in light of everything he's given to you? There's only one thing you can give him, thanks. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all your people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. This is what you give to the Lord for all his benefits. You give him thanks. Ought not we be the most thankful people on earth? Because of what he has done, what it requires is praise. We know personal worship, we know public worship. Both belong in the child of God, both need each other. Where salvation is truly come, private and public worship don't exist in two separate spheres. They hold together, returning to our God the only thing we can return, that is praise. Thank you, Abba. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your deliverance. Father, we know what manner of people we were father you have loosed our bonds father you've set us free father forgive us for being so enamored by the things of this world the things where that, that rust moth and rust will destroy oh father help us to see the glorious inheritance of our god father the cost through the lord jesus father may we be a thankful people Father, may we encourage one another with what the Lord has done in our lives. Father, help us to continually give you thanks. And Father, I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.